Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. It's been quite an eventful Labor Day weekend seeing what's been going on in the Middle East, especially as it's had ramifications for the wider neighborhood, whether it be in Africa, Europe, Asia, or the rest of the world. Some severe developments have taken place in the last week from last Wednesday that are worth discussing. On today's show, we have Cynthia Farhat, the writer and co-founder of the Mr. Al-Yum and Liberal Egyptian Parties. We also have at a later time Thomas Small, the associate producer for the film Path of Blood and a up-and-coming documentarian. But first, a little bit of commentary of what's been going on with the United Kingdom's Islamism problem. First and foremost, we find ourselves in a situation right now where the Labour Party, under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, is debating its status of what's going on with Islamism in that country and also anti-Semitism. Insofar as we've had a huge scandal rock the political establishment in the House of Commons for the past two months, as statement after statement of Jeremy Corbyn's sympathies with the Muslim Brotherhood, with Hamas terrorist organizations, with many other individuals that come and go in terms of being able to have anti-Semitic vitriol in one way or another, that are trying to influence British politics. And Corbyn's response? He apologizes, he posts videos on YouTube, he puts tweets out, and he adopts a different version of what would otherwise be recognized as the definition of anti-Semitism according to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. At the same time, we find a Britain in turmoil as Brexit approaches its exit from the European Union. Insofar as right now we see there's a struggle in the Conservative Party, the Tories, for who will lead Britain out of the European Union. Will it be Boris Johnson, the former foreign minister and former mayor of London, or Theresa May, or another up-and-coming conservative leader? Right now, the United Kingdom is in the backdrop of having to deal with three different strains of extremism. The first, as I alluded to in the Labour Party, is we find more and more individuals joining this party and becoming spokespeople for the party who harbor anti-Semitic sentiment. And it's not so much out of a traditional Labour stance on this. If we look at Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, to the past two former Labour prime ministers, and then after Brown was defeated by David Cameron, there was not a hint of anti-Semitism in that party until we started to see the rise of individuals like the former mayor of London, George Livingston, or other individuals who in one way or another were trying to get to the leadership of the Labor Executive Council. Jeremy Corbyn, the current opposition leader and head of the Labor Party, was always a Labor backbencher from the early 1980s, but at the same time, he was always affiliated with organizations that were against the grain of British politics, whether it was his support for the IRA and Sinn Féin, the uh, Irish Nationalist Party, or whether it was his long-term affiliation with, in some countries, terrorist groups like that of Hamas, of Hezbollah, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or his off visits to Gaza, to the West Bank, to Turkey, and to other Middle Eastern countries, with his most recent trip being exposed where he attended a memorial standing next to the grave of the leaders of Black September and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, offering his well wishes for terrorists responsible for the deaths of over a dozen Israelis at the Munich Olympics. Now, in one way or another, this individual, Corbyn, is leading in the polls to become the next prime minister of the United Kingdom. And that's a problem, not just for us here in the United States or for those in the United Kingdom, but also for those in the Middle East. 
On one side, we have right now a rising reform movement in countries like Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in the Emirates, and in other Middle Eastern countries, where they're trying to get closer to the West by reforming their social policies, their economic policies, granting limited yet an increase in the amount of rights for women and minorities. And then on the other hand, we have their supposed allies in the West, in one way or another, becoming more affiliated with the old guard of the countries that are trying to reform. In comes Corbyn, support for Hamas rises. What does this portend for the reformers in Saudi Arabia and other countries? On the other hand, we have right now Middle Eastern countries that are fighting back against extremism in their own backyard. We have Corbyn condemning the Saudi Emirati campaign against Yemen. We have him showing support for the opposition in, the, the, uh, in, in Egypt and in other countries. And then when we look at the other dysfunctional leadership and Corbyn's opposition, whether it be the Conservative Party or other smaller parties in the United Kingdom, we find ourselves at a crossroads where the individual who is the friends with the enemies of yore may be the leader of tomorrow. Now, the United Kingdom has a particularly sensitive position in its relationship with the United States. How is the U.S. and the U.K. supposed to be able to have military cooperation, intelligence sharing, other ways of trying to have joint national security goals if a leader of that country is elected who stands against most American national security priorities in the Middle East? To give you a few examples of cooperation that may be in jeopardy, let's look at the joint mission between the U.S. and the U.K. out of English air bases in Cyprus. Or we can look at another example of them having joint special reconnaissance teams in Syria. Or we may even go a certain farther way by looking at the U.S. and the U.K. cooperating with defense cooperation as it relates to Israel. Corbyn, Israel, the two terms are anathema to one another. Corbyn himself has proven, as in the words of the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, to be a card-carrying anti-Semite. Now, if he's able to take leadership of the Labour Party into the next UK general election for the House of Commons and becomes Prime Minister, the world order and the way in which we know security cooperation exists between our country, the United States, and the United Kingdom may not just be in jeopardy, but it may come to a complete standstill. After these messages, we'll be joined by Cynthia Firehot, leader, writer, and expose of Islamist influence in Congress. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, Check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other 
for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Form in the morning. I'm your host, Greg Roman. Today, Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. A report that came out in the news yesterday in Egypt's paper, Yum Saba, alliterated the count of an Egyptian going to the U.S. Embassy in Cairo and throwing a homemade bomb outside of the U.S.'s embassy headquarters in the middle of the Egyptian capital. He was later arrested by the Egyptian police and was seemed to have been affiliated with an extremist movement, according to the Egyptian government. To speak a little bit more about Islamism and extremism in Egypt and also their ambassadors here in the United States, I'd like to welcome Cynthia Farhat to the program. Cynthia is a co-founder of the Mr. El Um Party and the Liberal Egyptian Party, which stood for peace with Israel, capitalism, and the abolition of theocracy. She is on an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group's hit list and was officially banned from entering Lebanon for her work for regional peace. Ms. Farhad is currently a columnist for Al-Makal Daily Newspaper and a fellow at the Middle East Forum. Cynthia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Greg. I appreciate it. No problem. So, Cynthia, let's dive right in. In light of the work that you did in Egypt, can you share what sparked your move from Egypt to the United States almost a decade ago? I uh, moved uh, from the United States, uh, from Egypt to the U.S. in uh, 2011 uh, after, um, of course, the uh, uprising, the Brotherhood uh, uh, uprising, uprising, which is euphemized as the Arab Spring in Egypt. And uh, I was, it was, I was getting calls from Egyptian intelligence that my days were numbered. And then when this, the right before Mubarak was ousted from power, my brother was abducted. And uh, I, I called him, and the phone opened. I was hearing him scream while the regime was at the same time trying to broker a deal with me to negotiate with the prime minister of Egypt at the time because they do not understand my motivations. They do not understand my work. They, o- they always overestimate me and then punish me for it. They thought I had control over the protesters in Tahrir Square, which, of course, I did not. And I refused to collaborate with them. And that actually ended up saving my brother's life. And uh, later after that, in October, I was supposed to go to a protest for religious freedom uh, with a friend of mine. My friend was executed uh, at the protest. I didn't go because I had a fever that ended up saving my life. And at the same, in the same month, I fled to the United States. Now, do you feel like the situation in Egypt today is reminiscent of the way it was in 2011, or has it changed for the better or for the worse? Oh, it changed significantly to the better. I actually, it is so much better right now. I I couldn't have uh, contemplated that things would be this good. Of course, there's uh, plenty of room for improvement, but uh, I'm pleasantly surprised at how much better it is. We have now a president, President Al-Fatih al-Sisi, with all his faults, uh, he understands the threat of Islamic terrorism. He is the most moderate president we've ever had in Egyptian history since 1952. Uh, He has done historic uh, things, uh, like, for example, he was the first Muslim ruler in the history of Islam uh, to actually strike back 
and kill Muslims as retaliation for their massacre of Christians. Uh, do you remember the, when Christians were abducted in Libya and decapitated? Uh, he retaliated with an airstrike on Libya, and that has never happened in 14 centuries. So there has been extraordinary uh, improvement in terms of uh, peace and of tolerance and uh, the understanding of the uh, threats of uh, Islamic terrorism. And he's not apologetic about it, which is also uh, very effective. Uh, he is uh, the most hated individual by Islamists and uh, terrorist groups, uh, including uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. So there is definitely a lot of room for improvement, uh, but uh, things, are, uh, things are much better. Now, the Egyptian economy, according to a press release that was given by Egypt's planning minister, Hala al-Sa'id, on July 25th, is booming at a 5.3% gross domestic product growth rate in 2017-2018 so far. But this does not necessarily describe all the condition of the Egypt's economy. You have a new Suez Canal system that in one way or another was overpaid for and is being underutilized. Egypt is importing something around like 60% of its wheat supplies. Tourism is still down. And at the same time, there's still a growing insurgency in the Sinai Peninsula. Outside of the security issues that Egypt is facing, how is LCC dealing with other more domestic social concerns in the country? Uh, it's a mixed bag. I think uh, Osisi is the first president uh, to actually try to solve the problems in terms of reducing the size of government and bureaucracy. You have uh, over 7 million employees in Egypt's executive branch of government alone. Uh, the, uh, the These bureaucrats basically uh, earn a living from uh, stopping the uh, free market from taking its course. So he is uh, in, he's now starting to significantly reduce the government. Uh, they're in the process of letting go 2 million employees, and it will be followed by uh, millions more. So he's actually trying to solve the problem from its core, and that has never happened before. Uh, so I'm, and, and that's actually one of his biggest challenges, uh, because uh, Egypt is heavily a socialist country, and... Uh, and the vast majority of, uh, of of college professors and teachers are very very are leaning to the far left, so that's going to be a big challenge for him. Uh, and of course, inflation is a big problem. But uh, I think uh, they're listening to uh, good advice and, and and doing the right thing uh, very slowly. But at least he's doing something. Now, Sisi has earned himself many enemies because of the fight that you described has put him as the uh, maybe most ardent Islamic reformer in the Middle East today, or at least in one words, trying to reform against the threat of Islamism that saw his predecessor, Mohamed Morsi, elected in 2012. Now, one way or another, what can you tell us about the opposition in Egypt? And perhaps the next question we'll go into is, is how have they influenced the United States? But let's talk about Sisi's enemies first in his country. Who are they? What are they doing? And what kind of threat do they pose to the Egyptian president? Of course, the biggest uh, uh, challenge is uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and terrorist groups that are allied with them. Uh, or funded by them, or uh, established by them. 
uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, incredibly, is almost uh, completely absent from uh, the Egyptian uh, population as 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 followers. Uh, Parwat al-Kharbawi, who is the most important defector uh, in the history of the, the Muslim Brotherhood, estimated uh, that uh, there are about uh, a couple of hundred thousand uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood right now, and in more extreme. Um, estimate of the members of, of, the, of the size of the Brotherhood people said it half a million members uh, are inside the Muslim Brotherhood. When we look at uh, Egypt's uh, population 100 million, that's a very, very small number. But their threat is because they're involved in powerful organizations such as Al-Azhar University in Cairo that is the hub for the Muslim Brotherhood and for the propaganda. So Cynthia, let me, let, me, let me dive down a little bit here for a second. The Muslim Brotherhood. I, let's say I want to join. Do I go to their office in Cairo? I sign up. I get a, a card, and then I attend meetings on Wednesdays. Or is it something a little bit more uh, uh, difficult to be able to understand or, or to be able to describe? What, what exactly does the Muslim Brotherhood look like organizationally? Its leadership structure. How does it pose a threat to Egypt's governing institutions? In the old days, uh, you could have walked into the headquarters and asked. To join, and then there's initiation period with various levels, which lasts for seven years. Because the Muslim Brotherhood has a cult-like structure, and it is a secret. Your 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 membership would be a secret, so it's not like you're going to they print a card for you. You go through extensive background checks and tests uh, to show the uh, your allegiance and to show your commitment. And uh, some of these tests are even they take you to camps and and. It's a, it's a very, very uh, tough process. But right now, after they have been dismantled organizationally and no longer have an office, the way it happens is through uh, Muslim, like if you know someone is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood in your neighborhood, or you have a friend who has an uncle or something like this, this person can be approached. And then they would start the process with you. Although right now they have, because they're desperate for memberships, they have been pretty liberal uh, for the first time in history of the Brotherhood to accept uh, affiliates uh, without uh, extensive background checks, even if they had questionable uh, affiliations with un-Islamic characters and that sort of thing. So they're desperate right now. It's much easier to join. But it's, it's, uh, they say in their manifesto that your, your membership in the Brotherhood should be a secret. This is the so, uh, this is the Brotherhood's manifesto. That's sort of like their governing constitution. Right, right. Their internal bylaws, and uh, one of the most recent documents they have released uh, in uh, this year in 2018 uh, states that you need to really keep it a secret, and even new members do not know the names of each other. So you get an alias uh, and uh, a drop phone. And that's how they communicate with each other. It sounds so like they're becoming more like a uh, like a terror organization or a exactly. uh, clandestine service rather than being the organization which I understood, which was one part political party, one part dawa or social services infrastructure, and one part theology with a uh, nice violent middle. Absolutely. So the thing is, is, is I understand CC. It feels threatened by the Brotherhood. And, and also, if you look at their tentacles that extend throughout the rest of the Middle East, there's chapters in Syria and Lebanon and the uh, Palestinian territories in Israel. 
in Iraq, in Libya, I mean, uh, in Turkey, you have not just the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, but you also have all these different franchises. It's sort of like the McDonald's of Islamism. They find themselves prevalent throughout the rest of the region and even active in Europe and the United States. And there's one group that you did a very, very, very extensive amount of research on in a report that came out in May of this year. And I, I believe that we had a, um, a hearing on Capitol Hill focused on Islamist influence in the U.S. Capitol. What can you tell us about that report? Well, that is uh, one of uh, the most disturbing reports I've ever worked on uh, because I, prior to working uh, on it, I had not realized uh, how powerful the Muslim, bro- lo- Muslim Brotherhood lobby is in the United States. And uh, their biggest and most important event uh, is called the Muslim Advocacy Day. And it takes place uh, every year around uh, May. Uh, It started in 2015. And this uh, Muslim Advocacy Day uh, started by uh, the U.S. Council of Muslim Organizations, uh, USCMO, in, in cooperation with the Council on American Islamic Relations Care. And uh, what they do is they have a four-day or five-day event where they lobby members of Congress through <coughs> Islamist activists and to push for the Muslim Brotherhood agenda, not for American Muslims, not for, not for uh, American I'm going to stop you there for a second. What is the Muslim Brotherhood agenda? Well, the Muslim Brotherhood agenda, we can really, uh, they articulated themselves in the document uh, that was called uh, the explanatory memorandum that was seized by the FBI in Falls Church uh, in 2004. And that document was originally uh, uh, was originally written in 1992 by the Muslim Brotherhood International Apparatus. And they talk exactly about their plan, and they call it Amaliyya Jihadiyya Hadariya, which is Civilization Jihad Operation. And it consists of infiltrating and influencing uh, the media, the policy circles, intelligence agencies, education, uh, every aspect of the United States culture so that they would eventually subvert it and convert it. One of their plans is to turn it into, according to Farwat al-Kharbawi, who's the most important defector of the organization, when I asked him this question, he said, when they, when he used to attend the meetings, and he was the attorney for the Muslim Brotherhood, he said, our whole main goal is to turn the United States of America into the Islamic States of America. They call it, that's what they, that's what, that's the future. That's their biggest prize, and that's what they're working for. So when you have groups uh, affiliated with the Brotherhood from USCMO and CARE, lobbying Congress, pretending to represent American Muslims, uh, that is a huge national security threat. You're you're referring to the United States Conference of Muslim Organizations and the Council on American Islamic Relations. And the uh, memorandum that you're speaking about was one that was found by federal investigators in the home of Ismail al-Barasi, a founder of the Dar al-Hijra Mosque in Falls Church, Virginia, during a 2004 search related to the 2008 Holy Land terror funding trial. Now, that document was found almost 15 years ago. How is it still relevant today? It's 
so relevant today because they still use their documents from uh, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and the 90s uh, as their playbook. They're not allowed to go outside the objectives. Uh, the international apparatus, with all its chapters worldwide, are not allowed, according to the Muslim Brotherhood bylaws, to uh, work for anything except the agenda set by the Muslim Brotherhood Guidance Bureau. So that has not changed. They have never shown any intention that this is going to change. And they still code these documents in their communications with each other and with the world, of course, when they speak in Arabic, not when they speak in English, because they're very good at this whole double talk thing. And the truth gets lost in translation. So according to their, according to the most important uh, internal uh, document for the bylaws of the international apparatus, which was written in 1982 by Mustafa Mashur, uh, guide of the Muslim Brotherhood, it states that all the chapters worldwide should be uh, taking their uh, direct leader orders from the guidance bureau and should be dedicated to jihad and martyrdom. So, so, so now, now in 2018, we find that this uh, advocacy day, I, I think, did go off and, and there was dozens of, uh, of Islamist affiliated activists on Capitol Hill. What happened in the aftermath of this event, and do you have any recommendations of what our listenership can do to find out more about what we've been speaking about today? We've got about 60 seconds left. Well, you can go to the uh, Middle East uh, Forum and find the complete report on this and share it with members of Congress and share it with intelligence agencies. Call your local uh, FBI, call your local representative and ask them why they're hosting uh, leaders affiliated with people that have been accused by the U.S. government as being affiliates of al-Qaeda, why they are hosting in their offices someone who was in contact with ISIS. Uh, they, we have, it has, it has very, very strange and horrible uh, details that, that would sound like a conspiracy theory, but unfortunately it's all fact with pictures, and please share it with your representatives. Cynthia Farhat, thank you for joining us this morning. Fellow at the Middle East Forum, writer for Al Makal, and a great all-around analyst concerning these issues both here in the United States and overseas in Egypt. Thank you for having me. Next, we'll be joined by Mr. Thomas Smallwood, focusing on his new film, Path of Blood, after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. 
find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum in the Morning. I'm Greg Roman, your host. Today's Wednesday, September 5th. And our next guest is someone that I've been engaging with over email, but I haven't had the pleasure to speak with one-on-one yet. But after seeing his new film, Path of Blood, and having the opportunity to review it as an early uh, critic, I guess, an early fan, he's someone that I definitely had to bring on air. Thomas Small is associate producer for the film Path of Blood and holds a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies from the University of London. Thomas, welcome to the program. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's nice, uh, nice finally to meet you properly. You too. And I have to tell you, after seeing Path of Blood and the dramatic video of Saudi Arabian intelligence collection and al-Qaeda films and outtakes on terrorist training videos, I never thought that something would be put together into such a masterpiece. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, not just the film itself with a quick synopsis of it, but what led you to produce this? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, my, I'm really grateful to you for those extremely uh, um, positive words. We're really pleased that people are responding so well to the film. Oh, gosh. Um, I guess it was about six years ago now that um, that the company I work for uh, in London was approached by um, uh, producers, executive producers, who had spent several years negotiating with the Saudi Arabian government to release to them footage that the Saudis had inside the Ministry of Interior, footage they'd seized uh, during terrorist raids um, on safe houses, on al-Qaeda safe houses throughout the kingdom between 2003 and 2007, 2008, um, during which time a very little-known insurrection occurred in the kingdom when al-Qaeda really did try its best to overthrow the government there. Um, when we heard about the footage, of course, we, we thought, I mean, as filmmakers, we thought, well, this is gold dust. Uh, we couldn't wait to see it. I was sent uh, out to Riyadh, uh, into the desert, in fact, outside Riyadh, to a sort of secret interior ministry archive uh, where there, there they were, these tapes that had been seized, um, some of them still in the suitcases that they, that they were in uh, during, uh, you know, when, when the raid happened. Hundreds of hours of uh, al-Qaeda home videos, uh, footage that al-Qaeda had filmed in order to produce ter- uh, suicide wills, in order to sur- uh, produce surveillance videos to help the, their recruits understand attack targets, uh, and, al- and, al- and also, and I would say most illuminatingly, sometimes just videotapes that they'd, that they'd filmed uh, of themselves larking about in the safe houses, bored out of their minds, waiting for the call from above, telling them to go to such and such target and pull the trigger. 
So it was an, a fascinating opportunity to tell a really, um, you know, a really gritty, real story about, let's face it, the geopolitical phenomenon of our age. Now, the inspiration and idea behind creating such a film with a deep inside look into Al-Qaeda may have came from the executive producers, but how were you able to sift through hundreds of hours of tapes and really put together a storyline that showed the message they were trying to communicate to your audience? It was a difficult task. I mean, you know, there there was a technical... Uh, there's basically just a technical process of, of of watching all of the tapes. I mean, I'm afraid I, that was that was down to me. I watched all the tapes, and with my knowledge of Arabic, I was able to earmark sections for translation, uh, earmark uh, moments that I thought the editor and the director would most um, you know most benefit from seeing as they struggled to put together a coherent narrative from this disparate material. Uh, after going through the, the, the tapes, I then had to really plunge into just good old-fashioned research, drawing on archive documents that the Saudi secret services provided to me, drawing on other academic research that had already, been take, that had already taken place in the Western world, to try to just dis- determine exactly day by day over this, over this long period of, of almost daily attacks in the kingdom of what happened, who the terrorists were, where they came from, what sort of people they were. Uh, and that material, in fact, was so vol- you know, voluminous that uh, we ended up approaching um, uh, you know, uh, Simon & Schuster, and they published a book uh, called Path of Blood as well, telling that, that history in detail. Because you know, the film, in the end, doesn't, isn't able to go into as great of detail as a book. And, and, we, and the, the director uh, decided early on in the process that he wanted to use only the footage, just the found footage, to tell the story as cleanly as possible with minimal amount of editorializing on our part. There is voiceover commentary, but it's just enough to string the narrative together. We really wanted the audience to feel that they were there in the safe houses, in the suicide trucks, there with the Saudi security services as they picked up the pieces and fought back. I think we've achieved that. It's, it's a pretty powerful uh, story. Now, I have a bifurcated question here. I can understand what the response would be in the West to viewing something like this, seeing as most Westerners are familiar with Madrid, with London, with 9-11, with other attacks that were carried out by al-Qaeda here at home, if you will. But what has been the Arab reception to this film? Uh, What was it like working with the Saudi Arabian interior security forces? And and, and how were you able to get their buy-in to take this very, very gory, but also, I think, in one way or another, influential material for a certain segment of their population and to be able to string it together. Have you had a, um, for instance, a premiere in Riyadh? Uh, have you had any reception in, uh, from, from Arabic-speaking countries? Well, while we were producing the, the feature film for the West, we also produced a three-part documentary television series, which broadcast a couple of years ago on Al Arabiya, the uh, Saudi-owned satellite news channel. And that which is made, that's made up of the same material. Uh, it's just because it's three hours, it's able to go into greater detail. And, that, and in that, we included interviews that we'd filmed with the Saudi security services officers who had been on the ground fighting the terrorists. And, and that series, I can tell you, really broke viewing uh, records in, in the Middle East. No one had seen anything like it. Um, 
As for working with the Saudi security services, I mean, I was as shocked as anyone, I think, to find just how professional they were, They're fluent English speakers, extremely well-educated, dedicated to their jobs, absolutely determined to prevent uh, terrorist attacks inside the kingdom, and working very closely with the United States, with Great Britain, other Western allies, with the Kingdom of Jordan especially, which who have who have created a very strong network of intelligence sharing to combat this global threat. Working with them was an absolute joy. Uh, in the Britain, we you know, we have uh, you know Muslims have been coming along to the um, to the to the screenings uh, in the cinemas, and the response has been almost entirely favorable. I mean, on the one hand, I think they very much appreciate seeing a story uh, set in the era of the war on terror, about the war on terror, but that features only Muslims. Muslims are obviously the terrorists, but they're also the police officers, the security services officers, and the victims. It reveals that what we call the war on terror is in some respects a civil war, an ideological war going on within Islam amongst Muslims. Muslims are on the front lines on both sides, and Path of Blood is special and unique in that it uh, tells that story from that perspective, and I think they really appreciate that. Now, after having done all of your research, do you think that al-Qaeda is still as relevant today in Saudi Arabia as it was in the mid-2000s? I mean, the case that I think I, I would define maybe as the uh, climax or, uh, or, or, or the, the, the peak of the beginning of uh, the downfall of al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia was with Abdullah Hassan al-Asiri and his attempted assassination of the Saudi Deputy Interior Minister at the time, Mohammed bin Nayef, now uh, sort of sequestered under house arrest by his nephew. But um, after that took place in August of 2009, we haven't heard too much about spurts of al-Qaeda activity in the kingdom. Uh, where do you think it is today versus 10 years ago? Well, I think that the security services have done a good job of stamping out um, the threat. They did a great job uh, 10 years ago in doing so. I think the uh, the amazing attack on Prince um, Mohammed bin Nayef, which is shown in all its gru gruesome detail in the film, uh, as you know, uh, was in fact an, an evidence as early as 2009 of just how well the Saudi state had done in preventing terrorist attacks. Uh, the the al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which at that point uh, had decamped to Yemen, where it remains a very potent threat, uh, were so annoyed with the Saudi successes that they they targeted Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, who, who was in charge of that success. Um, inside Saudi Arabia over the last several years, there have been uh, sporadic terrorist attacks, bombings, shootings, uh, gunfights, uh, in a way like there have like there have been elsewhere. Most of those attacks have been attributed to ISIS-affiliated uh, cells or lone wolves. Again, a bit like elsewhere in the West, uh, including the West. Um, there have been some, of course. Um, uh, gunfights and terrorist activity attributed to Shiite groups in the eastern province allied to Iran, as, as, or so the Saudis claim. Um, but al-Qaeda has been pretty quiet. In some ways, as al-Qaeda has been quiet, um, in general, in the last five years, locally, in local theaters, I've mentioned Yemen, certainly Somalia, parts of Syria, where right now their affiliate is being, <laughs> being, uh, is, is getting ready to be crushed by by Assad and Putin. Um, 
on, on local theaters, they've been very active. But their, their global presence in these last few years has been, it seems to me, at least a period of retrenchment, of growth, allowing ISIS to take the spotlight uh, and to, to uh, become a target for the global war on terror, while al-Qaeda has been rebuilding its networks. And now it's, I think, it's, it's safe to say, stronger than ever. The question really is, uh, is it in their interests to attack the West as they did so dramatically 17 years ago, uh, or are, uh, did they learn their lesson from the beating they took following 9-11, and will they keep their attention focused on more local uh, local groups, you know, grabbing local territory where they can, building up more Middle Eastern-based political and military networks? That's really the question. Right, and, and this sort of points to the resilience not just of a uh, of an organization, but of an organization's ideology. I mean, you know, Ayman al Zawahiri right now is broadcasting from some cave in the AFPAC uh, Waziristan border area, but at the same time, he still has an audience of millions. Let's turn towards a little bit of uh, modern uh, Arab thought on Al Qaeda. We see reformers, or if we can call them reformers, like Mohammed bin Salman. Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt, some of the other leadership, even with Maqtad al-Sadr, former uh, enemy of the United States. One might even characterize him as a current enemy of the United States if we still hold him accountable for his uh, Mehdi army and Sadr city uprising against U.S. forces and also uh, U.K. forces in 2005 and 2006. But how is this new generation of Arab leadership treating extremism whether it be in Saudi Arabia, whether it be in um, Iraq or, or, or in, uh, in, in, in Egypt, all which have been targets of al-Qaeda terror today versus the way that the Saudis stamped it out 10 years ago? Well, I think that the Saudi experience um, starting in 2003 when al-Qaeda launched, began launching attacks in the kingdom was a big wake-up call for them. Um, I don't think that they – I mean, they knew – they had been for years already um, very aware that bin Laden and this group that he'd formed uh, had them in their in, in, had them in his sights. I mean, he 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 published his famous fatwa in 1996, calling you know basically excommunicating the Saudi royal family uh, and all who work for it uh, from Islam. And the year before that, as early as 1995, his first bombing uh, was in Riyadh. So they were aware that they were targets. I don't think they were aware that there was such a, an enormous network inside the kingdom that was that ready, ready to rise up as they did. So that experience was decisive for them. You know, they have absolutely no truck, certainly not within their own borders, for anything like uh, organized Islamist terrorist groups. And that really applies now across the board to, to the vast majority of, of, let's say, Arab and Muslim states. Outliers, of course, remain problematic. Um, you know, Iran is is always a problem. Uh, the places where there is no f real functioning government is obviously a problem. Yemen, Somalia, as I said, Syria in, in recent years. But you know, last year, uh, King Salman, Mohammed bin Salman, with President Trump beside them inaugurated this big, uh, you know, uh, pan-Islamic anti-terrorism center in the kingdom. I think 53, if I'm not mistaken, 53 Muslim countries uh, were, were, had sent representatives there to, to sign up to this big effort to stamp down on organized terrorist groups. Now, all of that has to be balanced with geopolitical realities in the post-Arab Spring era when 
the wider conflict between an, uh, an ever-growing Iranian Shiite crescent, if you like, and a Saudi-centered Sunni opposition to that movement uh, have been fighting all these proxy wars, at times leading Saudi Arabia and other Sunni states, especially Qatar, to ally themselves with this or that group, which to some extent are affiliated with ideologies at least similar to those espoused by al-Qaeda and ISIS, while fighting similar groups supported by Iran, uh, some of which some of which are, are in fact Sunni, but most of which are Shia. So there's a sort of strange balance being struck between, on the one hand, a very illegitimate and very conscious state policy uh, to resist al-Qaeda-style al terrorism, and al-Qaeda itself, of course, and the, the sheer exi exigencies of all of the geopolitical and military chaos that is, that is uh, happening all around uh, Saudi Arabia at the moment. Now, we've got a, a few minutes left. I would be uh, behooved if I didn't ask you about the current status of politics in the United Kingdom, specifically as it deals with uh, Islamism or, or, or maybe more appropriately, violent extremism. You have a, a rift in the Conservative Party right now between Boris Johnson and Theresa May and their allies on either side. You have this uh, inquiry that was announced yesterday by Scotland Yard of looking into Labour's anti-Semitism. What role does uh, extremism in the UK, which I, which probably climaxed in the 7-7 attacks in 2005, or maybe even with uh, the rise of individuals like Ahmed Choudhury uh, uh, about a decade ago until his imprisonment, in, in the next few years in the UK? Uh, what, what role, not necessarily does Al-Qaeda have, but do, uh, do Islamists and, 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 and extremist ideology have as it relates of the uh, Islamist variety in, in that kingdom, and, and, and what's being done to fight back against it? Well, I would say that, I, you know, who knows, actually, to be perfectly honest. My feeling is that a younger generation of Muslims in the West have, by and large, moved away from this extremist ideology. I think uh, successful efforts to, to reveal just where this ideology leads uh, have, have led people to, to just say, look, this isn't what we want. Now, obviously... Uh, a minority of, uh, of of people of Muslims in in Western nations uh, remain susceptible to this ideology. Some of them acted on it by, uh, as we know so famously, joining ISIS. Many of those are coming home or have returned home. Some of those are you know are carrying out lone wolf attacks or via internet indoctrination. People who weren't in Syria are carrying on carrying out such attacks. So. That is a real threat. I mean, the, the British security services are absolutely excellent, really world leader, leaders in combating terrorism. They are, they are hand in glove with, with the American security services and Middle Eastern partners, particularly the kingdoms of Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, I, I feel that, I mean, as, as an American citizen residing in London, where I've lived for 15 years, I, I feel that, you know, it, it, the situation is being taken care of as well as it, it can be. Uh, the kingdom, uh, you know, Britain is a very liberal society. Uh, you know, this recent 
rift with Boris Johnson, apart from the Brexit stuff. But I mean, the most recent intervention of Boris Johnson in the Islamist thing was when he came, when he wrote that editorial about about the burqa, so-called right, the burqa ban. people. <laughs> Yeah, people say burqa when they sometimes mean niqab, when they sometimes mean hijab. They don't really know what they're talking about. But let's say burqa, uh, where you know Boris Johnson was actually defending the right of Muslim women to wear a burqa should they wish to do so in a classic liberal, you know, Whiggish, you know, Anglo-Saxon tradition. He was actually defending the right of extremist Muslims to to, to dress as they like. Of course. Such is the sensitivity around this er- this question, and and with political correctness informing so much political uh, dialogue that everyone jumped on him as if he had he had he had said that all Muslims should be expelled from the country or something. So the sensitivities remain, but that that's some sort of bubbling on the surface, and that's really amongst ordinary you know non-Muslim people. I think within Muslim communities. The vast majority really do just want to get on with their lives, um, and and the the big the big um, obstacle is this still this kind of unwillingness amongst the Muslim community here in Britain to not to close ranks when events happen when attacks occur. Uh, one sometimes wishes that the that Muslim communities would be swifter in condemning them themselves and perhaps cooperating more vociferously with the authorities. It's something about communities, you know, in the West. They tend to they tend to rally around themselves um, and defend their group identity before perhaps weeding out, you know, the <laughs> the rotten apples right. in and, the and barrels. That's something that I hope we can uh, we can look at as as you know. Hopefully, there will be no other attacks to to rally the troops for. But if it doesn't oh, happen, yeah. we'll, we'll look more in the, the national precedent. So we have two screenings of The Path of Blood, one in Cleveland, Ohio, on September 18th, the second in El Paso, Texas, on September 19th. Any plans for a Philadelphia screening? Well, I'm not sure. In fact, you know, the, 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 uh, this, this is a very unique film. It sometimes takes uh, cinema owners a, a longer than normal to, to agree to show it. I mean, the distributors are working hard to get them, get in as many cinemas as possible. It is, however, available for purchase on iTunes, where I understand it's selling like hotcakes, because it really is uh, an extremely interesting and extremely thrilling experience, unlike anything anyone's ever seen. We'll hope to get it out here. Thank you very much. Path of Blood Film. Hashtag Path of Blood Film. Everyone should watch it, download it, go to pathofbloodfilm.com and make sure you have your opportunity to see this monumentous piece of cinematic art. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. We'll be back after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. 
We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to the last segment of Millie's Form in the Morning. I'm your host, Greg Roman. Today's Wednesday, September 5th. Wow. What a great review we had. One by Cynthia Farahat, focusing on her Islamists and Congress report that came out back in May, but still talking about the relevance today, both on the Muslim Brotherhood activity going on in the nation's capital and also in Cairo, its birthplace. And then hearing from Thomas Small, the associate producer of the film Path of Blood. I hope everyone has an opportunity to see it at pathofbloodfilm.com. Now for our last six or seven minutes, we have our two-on-two segment highlighting two issues that came out in the news in the last week, and a little bit of commentary as related to where we think it's going. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, addressing the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, supports a reported plan by the U.S. president to halt all aid to the U.N. agency for Palestinian refugees, Israeli agent, news agency Hadashot reported on Friday. As we know, last Friday, President Trump's State Department came out with an announcement declaring that it will end $364 million of aid going to the Palestinians. And in terms of the way that this goes forward, it wasn't necessarily a uh, denunciation or renunciation of all American aid to Palestinians in general. It was a cessation of the U.S. support for the inflated definition of a quote-unquote Palestine refugee. Those individuals that left their home in 1948 and 1949, going from one way to another, uh, I think, you know, uh, as a result of the Israeli War of Independence, which was fought after seven Arab armies invaded the sovereign Jewish territory, not that would just had been held in 48 and 49, but that had been under international law and, and mandated to the Jewish community of then Palestine from back in 1917 and 1918. But the continuing proliferation of the refugee population. Usually when you have a refugee population, you start with a certain number and it gets smaller, either through resettlement or repatriation or being able to find citizenship in another country or being able to return from where you came from. Not because there was a uh, a, a justified return, but because there's an end of conflict. But on one hand, you have Palestinian leaders calling for continued violence against the Jewish state, and then an international umbrella organization separate from all other refugee agencies that in one way or another is giving support to the myth that there are individuals who have citizenship, whether they be Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian, Egyptian, Kuwaiti, Iraqi, or in some cases of a European country or even the United States or Canada, that's 70 years after they left the place from which they came and continued their warfare and their struggle against the state from which they left, have in one way or another been able to, number one, still maintain some sort of, 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 of myth, mythical right of return to where they left. Number two, even if they settled somewhere, somewhere else, they think that they can return. Number three, if they have children, those children inherit their refugee status. Their grandchildren inherit their refugee status. Their great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren also are able to inherit it. 
And the, the myth that is being perpetuated by this agency, by UNRWA, was broken last Friday at 3 p.m. when the Trump administration announced that they will no longer fund this fictitious definition of refugee. I don't see individuals who fled from North African countries after World War II because of an Arab onslaught or genocidal tendencies that settled in Israel claiming to be able to go back to Libya or Algeria or Egypt or Morocco. Those who left countries after World War II, which were kicked out after the Holocaust and ended up settling in Israel, aren't claiming some sort of right to be able to return to Poland or Germany or Italy or France, countries in which they left. I think that what Trump did was taking two different kinds of management styles from his business experience. One, in terms of expecting a gradual change in policy, which wasn't accepted by any interlocutor of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Or two, trying to disrupt this issue, which has been on the back burner of the peace process for the past 26 years now. Or 25 years since Oslo, but 26 since the negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians began directly. And what he did was he said, look, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not going to allow U.S. recognition for any of this process. We're certainly not going to subsidize it to the tune of over $4 billion over the last 25 years. And we have a certain amount of expectations for Palestinian responsibility for how they should be reforming their own society, how they shouldn't be clanging on and clinging on to old institutions. And in one way or another, I think we're going to find ourselves with a recalcitrant Palestinian refugee agency, UNRWA, on its way now to being deteriorated and shifting U.S. aid from that of supporting a false refugee identity and moving to development, economic, and need-based aid, which may actually help the Palestinians get themselves one step closer to the state that they so desire, just not with the individuals being able to return to another state, that of Israel. And the second issue that we saw in this arena was another protest taking place last Friday along the Gaza border, and also in the West Bank village of Ras Karkar, where hundreds of Palestinians demonstrating against Israeli land, land seizures for Jewish settlements threw stones at troops who responded with tear gas and rubber bullets, injuring at least a dozen people. Now, the news reports said that it was land seizures, but in one way or another, just as many Palestinian developments are subject to Israeli law as we see as Israeli settlements being subject to Israeli law. An amount of Israeli houses that have been destroyed by the Israeli military authorities is in no way a small number versus the amount of Palestinian houses that were illegally built on land that was not theirs, that was expropriated and even supported by the European Union to being able to have been destroyed by them one way or another. So I think that the point that we have right now is it's a very complicated situation. One of the thorniest issues of the peace process, the refugee definition, has now been taken off the table by the Trump administration. That's it for our program today. I'd like to thank Delaney Anchek, our production assistant, Lisa Barbunas, our production assistant, and also our board operator. We'll see you next week, every Wednesday, 10 a.m. on WWDB 860 AM.